Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? I can't believe I'm going to share this with you, but my middle name is Wallace. And like most diasporas, the Scottish-Australian diaspora sort of overdid it a little bit, more than you would if you were back on the green hills of Bannockburn. And somewhere in the back of my closet, I have a fine ruby-red tartan with thin yellow stripes across it. It's supposedly the Wallace clan family tartan. But is it an authentic Scottish relic or was the wool pulled over one of my ancestors' eyes? Peter MacDonald is a tartan historian and joins me today to take a look at this fabric. Uh, Peter, welcome to you. Good afternoon. We might say that my Scottish uh, antecedents or ancestry is somewhat inauthentic. We've been in Australia for some generations now. But what about my tartan? Do we know if my tartan is authentic? Um, certainly the Wallace, define authentic. The Wallace tartan um, is one of a number that were invented, and I use that term advisedly, by a couple of brothers um, in the early 19th century. So it's as old as most clan tartans. Uh, and it was first published uh, in 1842 in, the, in their book, which was called The Vestiarium Scoticum, or the, uh, the Dress of the Scots, the Vestments of the Scots, uh, and therefore is amongst the earliest of the clan and non-clans of Lowland family tartans. There is this pervasive myth that tartan was originally designed for each Scottish family or clan, but you're, you're saying that that's not the case, that most of them are 19th century inventions? But they are nice and said. So um, you, you need to understand, um, you know, going way back. So, so if we look at, for example, the Romans talked about the Celts as they described them, um, um, wearing variegated garments. We don't know whether that meant tartan or not, but we certainly have surviving specimens, um, not actually in Scotland because of the the um, nature of the soil, but from elsewhere of tartan. So the one from Denmark, for example, from about the first century um, AD. So they go way, way back. Um, tartan really became synonymous with Scotland, or indeed the Highlands, as part of the latter uh, Jacobite Wars in the 18th century, when it was used as a symbolising, um, or a rallying symbol, if you like, or, or a codifying symbol. At that time, people wore what they liked, could afford, or was available. And the concept of clan tartans belongs to what was called the Highland Revival, which was um, a period that started in the... 1780s and ran through to about the 1840s. And in fact, it, the Highland Society of London, which, although the name suggests it wasn't in Scotland, it was actually formed by a lot of uh, chiefs who had houses in London who were members of Parliament. They they started collecting tartans and formulating the concept of clan tartans in, seven, in uh, 1815. So who were the Sobieski-Stuart brothers? What part did they play in the history of tartan? <laughs> So the Sobieski-Stuart brothers were two brothers from England, stroke possibly Wales, who arrived on the Scottish scene early in the 1800s, claiming to be the illegitimate uh, grandsons of Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, a mythos which has been debunked. But they actually did a lot of research, um, started writing uh, authentic, quote, <laughs> poetry, um, finding old fragments of poetry, and then turned their hand to tartan design, they began their work in not long after the Highland Society came up with the concept of clan tartans, so probably about 1820, produced a book um, that was never published, but a draft version in about 1825 um, had a 
sort of running with Sir Walter Scott through their um, mentor, who was Sir Harry Dick Lauder, who was taken in completely by what they said. They produced something like 48 tartans based on two or three designs, um, published it in a book in 1842 called, as I say, The Vestiarium Scoticum, which actually was the first book ever published to have tartan pictures or plates in it. Um, many of those tartans, what they did was they uh, invented or gave attributed tartans to a whole load of lowland families who historically had not had or worn tartan in the way that the Highlanders had. So Hume, Wallace, for example, um, and a number of other, uh, of Lauder, uh, Armstrong, people like that who'd never had tartans. You mentioned uh, the uh, men, uh, history around the Romans and their descriptions of a tartan-like fabric. There was mm -hmm. also the um, uh, the oldest tartan patterned twill cloth ever discovered, dating back to 2100 BC in uh, what is today Xinjiang in China, southeast of Kazakhstan. And then you go forward to 1980 when the Glen Afric tartan was discovered in a peat bog. Tell me about the Glen Afric tartan. The Glen Afric tartan is a, <clears throat> a piece <clears throat> so-called because it was found in Glen Afric. For those of your listeners who don't know, Glen Afric is a long glen, um, i.e. a broad valley, um, about <clears throat> 20 miles west of Inverness, and it runs for about 30 miles. Uh, this piece was discovered during some forestry work um, to replant, reforest part of the glen. Um, and it was handed in, in a, a plastic bag to a small museum in Scotland that my father was running at the time, and I can remember it being handed in. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, the, the records are not uh, very clear into you know, exactly who handed it in or where exactly in the Glen it was found. But it is a remarkable piece. It is something like um, 12 inches by about uh, 18 inches. So it's quite a large fragment. <clears throat> very, very simple, rustic piece of cloth. And it, it it basically sat in the museum's collection for the next 40 years, being, in terms of tartan, I guess, um, uninteresting to look at from a non-academic perspective. It's quite brown, it's stained with peat, as, as you uh, might expect. Um, but there were very obviously some stripes and lines on it. Uh, I was doing some work uh, last year with the VNA Dundee Museum, who put on a huge and very successful talent exhibition. And they had said as part of that, they had tried to get the piece from one of the pieces from Xinjiang uh, and unsurprisingly failed. They had tried to get a piece from uh, the National Museum, which is a simple two-coloured check um, of undyed wool um, and failed. And they said to me, do you have anything which they would describe as proto-tartan? I said, ah, oh, I've got this piece here. The, the museum, uh, the the um, the uh, charity that I work for has this piece. And so we agreed to loan it. But as part of that work, I had always felt that this piece was probably pre-1700, simply by its structure. Most of the surviving pieces of old type in Scotland are post-1700, in fact, all of them. Um, I'd always felt it was older, but I didn't know whether that was 690 or 1690 or anything else. So we set about having it, um, the colours analysed, dianalyzed, which told me what I already knew but had to be done if you like which there were no artificial dyes and no um, modern industrial imported uh, dyes i.e um, natural dyes from hardwoods in south america which started to come in in the late 18th century so it told us that but that didn't give us an age uh, and then we undertook a process through um, uh, a 
testing site in Glasgow to do the um, carbon-14 testing of it, which I didn't even know would have been possible. Uh, it took about 14 weeks because they had to effectively extract all the peat from it first, because that would obviously um, influence the carbon uh, footprint, if you like. And we came up with a date, or they came up with a date, of between 1500 and 1600, which is truly remarkable. Uh, a really exciting piece, uh, which puts it as the oldest piece of what I would describe as true tartan. I, it's a pattern. I should have said, sorry, the, the dye analysis showed that the tartan colours, or the colours were involved, were brown, stroke possibly black, um, green, red, and yellow. Um, and that, therefore, having stripes of different proportions and multiple dyed colours mm. makes it what I would describe as a true tartan as opposed to a simple check of undyed uh, undyed. Yeah. Um, how, yes. how fascinating, yeah. If you've just joined me, historian and tartan specialist Peter McDonald is here. We're discussing, well, as you just heard, the oldest known pieces of tartan. Of course, there were attempts, certainly after the uh, failure of the last Jacobite rising in the mid-18th century, to ban the kilt and tartan. Did this work? Was it effective in stamping it out of the culture? Well, that's, that's a really interesting question, and it, it talks to one of the big myths in Tartan uh, history, if you like. Um, following the Jacobite Rising, uh, the British government at the time set about to uh, suppress what they saw as the enemy, and one of the ways they did this was to further develop what was called the Disarming Act. The Disarming Act, which had existed from previous Jacobite um, Risings, you know, banned you carrying knives, swords, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but they added to this an element of, that covered the dress of the Highlanders. It did not, and this is where the myth comes in. It did not ban tartan per se. Um, I've been, I've done a lot of research in this, and that um, idea first appears in 1960 in a book in the, <laughs> um, and it was a misreading of what the act says, which it talks about the clothing which is banned and it talks about the kilts, the plaids, the trues, the little kilts and any uh, great coats or outer coats made of a tartan or party coloured stuff. So people jump on that and say, ah, see, tartan was banned. And you go, well, no, it was only for outer cloaks. And this is to do with, I think, the idea that all Jacobites, whether you were Scots, Highlanders or not ever or whatever, were to wear tartan. Um, but it wasn't... Uh, that's per se. The Act also applied to men and boys in that part of North Britain called Scotland, which had been previously defined as the Highlands, i.e. north of the River Forth, north and uh, west of the River Forth. So it didn't include women. Um, so if women weren't included, how can it have been banned? Mm. Okay. Uh, interestingly, also, the gentry were excluded because if you owned land, you were allowed to protect it, by which you could carry arms and indeed employ armed men. And the act was founded on the banning of arms. So you, if you were gentry, you were also allowed to continue to wear your Highland dress as well. So like most things that are legal, it actually applies more to the poor people than it did to the rich. <laughs> of course, there was this misguided attempt at unity. Uh, Prince George IV wore a full Highland dress. This didn't go down exactly as he'd planned, did it? Uh, it, it didn't. There was some ridicule, partly because I think he was quite a, shall we say, he was quite a chunky chap. Um, and he squeezed into Highland dress, um, you know, uh, including flesh-coloured tights to protect his modesty. Um, 
But actually, it was all orchestrated by Sir Walter Scott, you know, who was probably the preeminent pre novelist of the early 19th century, certainly in the English-speaking world. Uh, and he, Scott, deliberately set about to, if you like, unify Scotland to heal some of the old wounds, because there had always been, and the Jacobite Risings were a prime example of this, it wasn't Scots versus English, it was Jacobite supporters versus the um the government's or Hanoverian supporters, and most lowlanders looked at the highlanders with some sort of horror as wild, uncouth, savage people who would come down and steal their cattle and their women. Flash forward to more recent times, Tartan's more or less nowadays seen in some circles as a symbol of defiance. I mean, the punk move, movement took it on. Uh, designers like Vivian Westwood and Alexander McQueen, and given the punk movement was quite English, you could say, is there an element of cultural appropriation, do you think, or when we're talking about such a an ancient and uh, many, uh, many and varied used uh, kind of tartan that it's difficult to put a cultural appropriation lens on it. Uh, I I don't think you can, and I don't think you can um, you know attribute cultural attribution to it simply because tartan, in its if you like basic structural form, is not unique to Scotland. But it, it's only in Scotland was it taken as if you like a unifying or a cultural symbol. But that was in the context originally of Highland dress, etc. But even in the early 18th century, possibly um, as early as the 17th century, it had been exported as a fashion cloth as well. And so we see, for example, in the 18th century, foundling children, i.e. orphan children uh, in uh, England, one of the ways of identifying if you gave up your child was you, you gave a token to the uh, hospital that looked after them and you cut it in half and you put a piece on your child and you kept the other half, if you like, you know, uh, to come along and say, yes, look, I've got the other half, this child's mine. And some of these pieces survive in the Foundling Museum in London, and there are tartan pieces there. Tartan was being exported to North America, certainly, by the um, early 1800s, um, in fact, late 18th century. So it has always been a fashion cloth as well as a um, cultural symbol associated with, as I say, Highland dress. And that's where, in Scotland, traditionally, the two are, if you like, inseparable, um, whereas the punk movement... Vivian Westwood, um, Shenzhen, uh, the um, the burials in um, Denmark from the first century, and indeed some tartan from salt mines in Austria from the eighth century, all the tartan patterns. So it's not the fact that it's the pattern, it was, if you like, how it was used in Scotland, which makes it uniquely Scottish and, if you like, culturally unique in, in, in a unifying garment. Lastly, but not least, do you have a favourite tartan? Would it be uh, your namesake, which, uh, I mean, Donald Tartan is quite similar to Wallace in the sense it uh, offers a lot of red, although I think you have a green stripe through uh, McDonald Tartan. Is it your favourite tartan? Oh, blimey. Now, there's a question. So I have a database with just over 11,500 tartans on it. Most of them are pre-19, uh, sorry, post-1970, because there are new ones every week, um, which is my favourite. There's a really difficult question. I guess it's the one that I'm researching at any given time, because I spend a lot of time doing that. So I'm off to a, a castle today further north to go and look at a piece which is um, associated with Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, which I've been researching for 30 years, and is, if you like, a genuine piece of 18th century tartan. That's got to be my favourite at the moment. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. Uh, fascinating, Indeed. fascinating to talk to you uh, and to get a lesson in Tartan uh, from Tartan historian Peter McDonald. Good to talk to you this afternoon. Thank you. Pleasure. 
You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park.